Hello, and welcome to Wellness Wednesday with 3W. Wellness Wednesday is sponsored by 3W Medical for Women, a nonprofit medical clinic offering free of charge or low cost reproductive health services to women in the Seattle area, regardless of income or insurance status. 3W does not profit off of the reproductive health choices women make. The information shared in this podcast is the opinion of the speaker or speakers. Medical information is not intended as individual medical consultation, but for general education only. Always consult your own health professional for personalized advice regarding medical decisions. And if you're in the Seattle area, consider making an appointment to consult with us. I'm Helen Nguyen, CEO and co-founder of 3W Medical for Women and the host of today's podcast. Hi there, Wellness Wednesday listeners. This is Helen Nguyen from 3W Medical for Women. Thank you so much for joining us on this Wednesday. Today, we're talking about a really interesting topic. I mean, I think all of our topics are pretty interesting. I'm a little biased. But this topic really hits home. It's it's in our backyard, what's happening, and it's the opioid epidemic. And I had, I've been keeping track of what King County Public Health does just so, you know, 3W stays up to date on certain topics that are being discussed in our community. And we were happy enough to reach out to King County Public Health. We got connected to Mandy, who's joining us today as our guest speaker. She is in the department or specializes in advanced practice nurse specialist, specifically substance use disorder. So welcome, Mandy, to our podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. And Mandy, specifically, you're part of the Seattle King County Public Health, correct? Yeah, yeah. Our official title is Public Health Seattle and King County. Awesome. Awesome. So we're so excited for Mandy to be here and teach us, you know, about what's going on because we want to be a resource for our community as much as possible. We want to connect you to the appropriate people like Mandy from King County Public Hall to really raise awareness about this topic and how it affects each one of us in some way, regardless if we know it or not. So let's just start with some basic, basic questions. What are opioids and what are the main effects? Yeah, thanks. So so opioids are a type of central nervous system depressant. So okay. of course, you know, they're they're well known for their role in relieving pain. That's how mm-hmm. we're all familiar with them. But also yes. as as those central nervous system depressants, depressants, they effectively mm-hmm. slow down body processes that are controlled by that central nervous system. So we can also see effects like decreased blood pressure, decreased heart rate, decreased breathing. And, you know, they they can also induce a feeling of well-being or euphoria. And, and, you know, while there is a lot of concern around opioids, we should also be clear that there are also a lot of benefits. They Mm -hmm. are a a very important tool in, in medicine, especially in anesthesia and and treating severe pain. And to kind of, you know, follow that road down a little bit with the, the CNS depressant effect. So when somebody has too many opioids and experiences an overdose, mm-hmm. the biggest signs that we see are unconsciousness and abnormal breathing. So somebody may have really slow or shallow breathing, or they may stop breathing altogether. They may make abnormal breathing sounds like snoring or gasping. And this, this abnormal breathing 
is really the, the biggest concern in, in an overdose and, and can ultimately lead to death from that lack of oxygen. And mm-hmm. we and we may see signs of low oxygen, like the like blue or gray skin, especially around the mouth and, and at the fingertips. And and while we're talking about opioids today, I do also want to make the point that there are other kinds of CNS depressants that we're all you know probably aware of, whether or not we we know how they work in the body. But things like alcohol, alcohol mm-hmm. is a CNS depressant, and and also benzodiazepines. They're a certain kind of anti-anxiety me- medication, like uh, like Xanax and Valium and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's something wonderful that you've pointed out is like opioids aren't bad. It's everything in moderation. That's something that we and correct me if I'm wrong. Like that's something that we try to it's a constant theme in a lot of the things that we discuss when we have like a medical professional like you guest speaker like you that can join us on these podcasts. It's like it could be used in a very effective way that can minimize pain. But if there's overuse or or anything like that, it could it could end up not good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for for highlighting that because also, you know, I think with a lot of the fear that we have around opioids now, the pe- the pendulum has kind of swung in the completely opposite direction and now some people are are being really undertreated for pain mm-hmm. because of the fear. So so it is mm-hmm. about balance and moderation. Yes. Yeah. And what makes opioids addictive? Yeah, so people use drugs in general, not just opioids, mm-hmm. but drugs in general, mm-hmm. really to either feel good or mm-hmm. to just not feel bad anymore, right? So the opioids give people a, a sense of escape and a feeling of well-being. And mm-hmm. that can be really reinforcing, especially to somebody who's already struggling. And then there are also properties of opioids that contribute to their addictiveness. So they have an ability to lead to physical dependence. And, and physical dependence just means that with repeated use over time, the body comes to expect the drug and the person mm-hmm. can get really sick if they don't have it. So people might be familiar with the term withdrawal and mm-hmm. that's that, that withdrawal sickness when you don't have the, the drug or the medication in the body. Yeah. And, and so in general, the ability to develop a physical dependence as well as the level of intoxication and the reinforcement that we get from any particular drug is what contributes to its addictiveness. So for example, there are some really potent opioids like fentanyl, if, if people have heard of fentanyl, and so we will definitely talk about that more in our conversation. Mm-hmm. But this, this potent opioid in the drug market, so it's incredibly potent. And with that potency comes a high level of intoxication. And then on top of that, fentanyl is also really short acting, meaning it doesn't last very long in the body. So people use it more often. And that good feeling is repeatedly reinforced. And it's especially reinforcing if it's relieving withdrawal symptoms um, because you're feeling really bad and now you feel really good. So it drives that, that desire to want to use more and, and all of those things can, can increase the addiction potential. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, honestly, though, I do want to say that, that I don't think it's so much about any individual drug or, or individual drug class like opioids as much as it is about our relationship to drugs and mm-hmm the root causes of addiction. So, so like I said, that, that escape that opioids and other drugs offer, that feeling of, mm-hmm. of relief or escape or euphoria means that people who are already struggling in life are at increased risk of addiction. So people with mental health conditions, especially untreated mm-hmm. mental health conditions, trauma survivors, mm-hmm. people who had really difficult childhoods, people who are facing poverty and racism or other forms of, of discrimination and, and systemic oppression in their everyday mm-hmm. lives. 
Yeah. So these, these life stresses are, are what really put people at risk for having a problematic relationship with drugs. So, yeah. And one final point on that, too. We do know that starting use at a young age does increase risk. So starting use, especially regular regular use at a young age while the brain is still developing is is particularly risky. Well, that's that's so wonderful that you just made us aware of who can have different a different relationship with drugs and it could be any of us. You list off, you know, a plethora of folks that have trauma, mental health issues, discrimination. I mean, we I feel like we all face those types of stress in our body or mm-hmm. in our in our lifetime at some point. And it could make us more drawn to drug use. Yeah. Would that yeah. be a correct kind of conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate that you said that because it is all of us. It does it does reach all of us. You know, whether it be us as individuals or a family member, colleague, you know, I think everybody has a relationship with somebody who has struggled with substances. And mm-hmm. and I think as a culture we like to other people. And pretend yeah. that it's that it's someone else's problem when really it's our, our collective struggle to deal with some really big mm-hmm. issues in our society that can that can lead to some problematic relationships with drugs. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a um, you know, we're we're people. And so it's it's like we we love community. I think we're drawn to live close knit kind of communities, regardless if we're extroverts or introverts. And especially when it comes to substance abuse, it it affects everybody. It's a ripple effect that affects everybody, regardless of maybe you're closer to that person or not. It kind of makes you go, oh gosh, I did not know that my world consists of folks that have this issue and what can I do about it? And what, how can I be more aware about it? Instead of thinking kind of that you're in some sort of closed bubble and it doesn't affect you because it, you don't have a problem with it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really wonderful to point out. Thank you so much. So why why are drugs and especially opioids so easily accessible for people these days? Or has it always been? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I would argue that in, in some ways they they always have been. This is this is a actually an interesting and kind of a complicated question. So if we're talking about opioids specifically, so we, you know, and, and referring to this, you know, quote unquote opioid epidemic, opioids used to be much more accessible from healthcare providers. And that's kind of where the, the quote-unquote opioid epidemic sort of began. So this was throughout the, the 90s and the aughts. We saw increased opioid prescribing by, by healthcare providers. And, okay. and this was really driven by pharmaceutical companies that gave really you know, inaccurate and misleading information to healthcare providers and also to the FDA. And they were really like aggressively lobbying and marketing these prescription opioids. So People were led to believe that these new opioids were completely safe and non-addictive. And of course, since then, we've all learned otherwise, and prescriptions have dramatically decreased in response. Mm. But interestingly, you know, taking away a drug does not solve the underlying problem. Mm. So what we've actually seen with decreased prescribing is huge increases in opioid overdose deaths. And that sounds a little counterintuitive, but the reason for this is because the decreased availability of those prescription drugs in the illicit market mm-hmm. increased their price. So, you know, people were having a hard time affording them. They were still going to use them. A lot of them were physically dependent on the drug. They had an addiction or maybe they had untreated pain. So it resulted in a shift away from using 
prescription pills to instead using super forms of opioids that were out there, like heroin, for example. Mm. Yeah. And so heroin was really driving those increases in overdose deaths throughout the 2010s. And, you know, like, like I said earlier, we, we do need to recognize that there are a legitimate medical need for opioids. And there mm-hmm. are also a lot of valid, albeit maladaptive reasons why people use them extra medically outside of medical authority. Mm-hmm. And so un- unfortunately, like I said earlier, that the opioid prescribing pendulum has, has swung in the other direction. And people, some people are being understated for pain, very real pain. And, and mm-hmm. some of those people, in addition to those with opioid addiction, are now just getting their supply from unregulated sources. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing now, if like, you know, I, I briefly mentioned fentanyl earlier, and I'm sure people have, you know, have heard of the, the opioid crisis and fentanyl in, in the news. And, and we see here locally just in the last few years that illicitly manufactured fentanyl is really driving our overdose death. And they've been rising dramatically, even just in the past few years. And, you know, this this overdose crisis has been a concern for, you know, decades now, but mm-hmm. just really sharp, dramatic increases in the last three years, kind of coinciding with COVID. Wow. And so to talk about fentanyl a little bit, it's increasingly available exactly because it is a very strong opioid. So just a few grains can have a really big effect. And what that means is that it can be sold and transported in smaller quantities. So it's, it's easier to hide and there's an increased profit to be made. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's easier to get around in a sort of unregulated illicit market, right? And truthfully, we know that this is, you know, kind of, again, sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but we do know that this is actually a direct result of criminalization. This phenomenon is referred to as the iron law of prohibition which means that if drugs are criminalized, we can expect to see stronger and stronger substances and, and mm-hmm. novel substances that can be really dangerous. And, and all of this mm-hmm. is done to you know, evade laws. Mm-hmm. And you know, people will always find a way to alter their consciousness with substance use. We've always done it. We will continue mm-hmm. to do it. And, and we found that you know, through, through what we've learned with the war on drugs, we've, we found that making it illegal actually makes it more dangerous mm-hmm. by driving these unregulated markets where, we, where substances have unknown strengths and, and purity. And we did see this with alcohol prohibition in the 20s that, that ended up killing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's just become more apparent again with, with mm-hmm. fentanyl. So I went off on a, a little bit of a tangent there, but no, that's so and, interesting. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Because and, I don't uh, think it's counterintuitive at all because okay. it actually makes a lot of sense because like the more you like crack down on something and make it this hard to find, hard to access thing, the more people want it. It's like, (laughs) it's like when we have our events and we're like, okay, there's only a certain number of seats. You got to sign up now. Suddenly we get the slew of people, the slew of crowds of people wanting to sign up for something Mm -hmm. because they don't want to miss out on it or, you know, they want to be there. And so I feel like it's kind of on that same thread of like the more, the more it's not available, the more it becomes this. And and even trying to find it maybe is thrilling. I don't know. Like we try to ban drugs from prisons and there's always a drug problem in prison, you know, yeah. or there's always someone sneaking in something. Right. So you really can't completely ban something. I understand why people want to ban it because that sounds like the logical thing to do. But mm-hmm. how I feel like 
maybe how you do that, what's the what's a better approach that we're not considering, uh, might be more effective than just completely yeah. banning. Yeah, and I th- I think you know the approach of banning something um, really kind of ignores human behavior. You know, we can mm-hmm. we can liken it to you know if we if we don't teach young people about sex education, we're just like we think that they won't have sex, but but we know that that's not the case, right? No, <laughs> um, so not people, at all. <laughs> yeah, so people are going to have sex. They're going to use drugs. You know, so. So yeah. how do we educate people and, and help them make safer decisions? And, and yes. yeah, uh, and, and that's so good that you pointed that out. Yeah, because that's that's what we try to do here at 3W all the time is like, how do we educate? How do we educate? How do we educate? How do we be upfront and honest with whatever it is that you're coming in to deal with so that we can make sure, OK, when you do decide to engage in an intimate relationship or or take this medication, you have full consent. You know, Mm -hmm. you know what you're getting yourself into and you can make the best decision for yourself and your body. And when people have those tools, they are able to make really good decisions for themselves. And it's a, I feel like there's like maybe a mistrust sometimes from the, from the world and our society to think that people can't make good decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really, yeah, I really appreciate that you said that. And I appreciate that you brought up consent, like with, Mm -hmm. with an unregulated drug market, it's like impossible for people to make, you know, safe, fully informed decisions and, and they really can't mm-hmm. have consent. And and I think that bodily yeah. autonomy is something that we should really be prioritizing. So yeah, thank you for, for using those words. Oh, thank you. Okay. So kind of jumping to my next question, why is it being called an epidemic? Yeah. So first it's, it's not just an opioid epidemic. It's actually an overdose epidemic. Mm-hmm. So there's been, you know, a lot of emphasis and, and attention given to opioids, but people mm-hmm. are actually dying of overdose at record rate from a variety of different substances. So here in King County, we've seen increases in overdose deaths every year for the past decade. So in terms of numbers, we in 2010, we saw 248 deaths in King County of all, all types of overdoses. Mm-hmm. And then jump ahead to 20. That number went up to 512. And this was, I mean, such a dramatic jump. Even just the year before in 2019, we saw 422. Mm -hmm. And then it went up to 512 just in that one year period. And that was really shocking and, and disturbing to all of us. And we were all thinking about, like, you know, how can the pandemic be influencing this? It must be a factor. And then in 2021, it increased even more. So it went from 512 deaths in 2020 to 718 in 2021. So an even larger increase in that one year period. Yeah. And, and, you know, nationally, we hit this really big record number, this really, you know, depressing record number of 100,000 deaths in, in the U.S in a one year period. And that was in the issue is not not getting better yet, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to kind of get back to what I was saying about it being not just an opioid epidemic, but an overdose epidemic is that, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in King County, our overdose deaths predominantly involve fentanyl, which of course is an opioid, but also Mm -hmm. methamphetamine. Methamphetamine was the lead driver of overdose deaths 
just until last year when when fentanyl started to supersede that. So so a lot of people are surprised that meth is is involved in in overdose deaths, but it's it's one of our our highest drugs in, involved in them. Wow. Yeah. Those numbers growing that dramatically really shocks me. And I I was just going to ask like how did the pandemic play a part yeah. in any of this? Um, yeah. So so we do think that people being isolated certainly was a factor. You know, there's a, a famous author, Johan Hari, who says that the the opposite of addiction is connection. So mm. during the pandemic, when we when we had a lack of connection and people were really isolated, especially folks who were yeah. maybe already struggling, mm-hmm. it couldn't have helped, certainly. And oh sure. Yeah. And then, you know, there was also, you know, a lot of disruptions to services. So people didn't have all of the supports that they were used to accessing support groups, behavioral health visits, and and like all of these other uh, recovery supports that people were were leaning on weren't there mm-hmm. for a while. So as the pandemic, well, I feel like we're still in a pandemic mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but people are starting to come out and masks are regulations are being more relaxed. Do you see this number? kind of curving back down as years move forward? Or do you think it's going to continue to climb until we really address it as a nation? I just don't hear much of our politicians out there talking about this as an issue. They're talking about everything else, I feel like, (laughs) in my opinion. But gosh, this is just hearing your the numbers that you're communicating to us, that's that's frightening. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree that it's not getting nearly enough attention. Unfortunately, in 2022, this year, we mm-hmm. are on track to likely meet or exceed last year's fatal overdose numbers. So, oh so although I do think the, the pandemic played a role, we also know that the, the influx of, of fentanyl in our community has really gifted things. And and that's really going to continue to drive overdoses. So we still have a lot of work to do. And what's the, can you give me some background on demographic? What's the age group that are overdosing at a high rate that you're seeing? Yeah. Can you give us some background about that? Yeah. Yeah. So truthfully, all age groups use drugs, including opioids. So Mm -hmm. from youth to elderly. You know, I've seen patients that, you know, range the, the full gamut of, of the age spectrum. And locally with, with overdose deaths, we see that it's pretty well distributed across adult age group in terms of numbers. But youth, youth actually, especially youth under 20, they make up a smaller percentage of people who are dying of overdose. But okay. we've seen some increases in youth overdose rates in the last few years. And that's really coincided with this emergence of illicitly manufactured fentanyl in our community. And and by by the way, that fentanyl is most common in the form of counterfeit pills, at least in our region. And in other regions in the US it's, it's different. But you know, we have fentanyl in the form of these counterfeit pills. And, you know, perhaps because youth are more likely to experience with opioids in the form of pills, especially if they think they're pharmaceutical pills rather than, you know, heroin, for example, you know, they, they, they might be encountering these, these substances. And, you know, when previously they might've taken a, a pharmaceutical opioid and, you know, maybe, you know, gotten high and then been fine afterwards. Now mm-hmm. our drug supply is just so lethal that we're seeing more, more youth dying. And, you know, actually, mm-hmm. interestingly, 
substance use among youth nationally has actually reduced in recent years. I think people think it's the opposite, but but the data shows that it's, it has reduced. But we're just seeing more young people die because of the sheer lethality of the drug supply. Yeah. And then, you know, also in terms of, of demographics, there is an overrepresentation of people of color and people living homeless in, in our overdose death data. And that really points to systemic health inequities and barriers to care for these patient populations. And I do want to point out, you know, anybody who's interested in learning more about the data, looking at these demographics in, in detail, we do have some, some near real-time overdose data on our interactive dashboards at kingcounty.gov slash overdose. So please do check that out. There's lots of resources there as, as well, which I might talk about a little bit later. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be sure to include that link on our description when we publish the podcast and make sure it's available to folks. I guess that's a great segue into what is King County Public Health, specifically Public Health Seattle, um, doing about the overdose issue, this epidemic that's, that we're seeing in our county right now? What are you guys, what steps are you guys taking to to help our community? I'm sure a plethora, but if you could name some, that would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, here at King County, we have a wide range of programs that, that you know, directly support people who are using drugs and or have a, a substance use disorder or an addiction. So we have, you know, our primary care clinic. We have a specialized low barrier treatment clinic for, for addiction. And we have our syringe services program that offer a variety of education and supplies and, and programming to, to support health of, of people who are using drugs. Mm-hmm. And then for our overdose prevention work, which is where I, you know, do, do the bulk of my work, we're doing a whole, a whole host of things. You know, our, our overdose prevention work includes surveillance. So looking at that data, responding to, to any, you know, overdose clusters that we might, that might come up in the data. Mm-hmm. We also do a lot of supporting of, of healthcare and behavioral health systems. We do public communications and then we do, you know, kind of those more like direct service things. We, we do naloxone and fentanyl test strip distribution, standing up some new drug checking services with our ring services partners. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a really great new post-overdose outreach program, which offers support and resources to people who have survived an overdose and also to like, you know, family members and and loved ones of people who died of an overdose. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten a lot of really good feedback about that, about that program. And then we also do a lot of training for both service providers and the public, including a program that I think we're particularly proud of right now, which is doing these trainings that are co-developed with disproportionately impacted communities. So we're training these communities on overdose prevention and response, but we're developing and designing the training with them in order to make it like as, as culturally relevant and effective as possible. So we do a lot and we really strive to have our work be driven by data and evidence and and I would argue, you know, perhaps most importantly, rooted in the lived experience of the people in our community who are most impacted. Wow. Yeah. That's that's awesome that you guys are doing all of that. Yeah. You're taking it seriously. And I hear just from you, just your your heart and your passion for making sure people know and are aware that you guys are doing something about it. You're not just sitting on your hands. You see this, the numbers climbing and it's not good and you want to yeah. do something about it. And I just so appreciate that as someone that lives in King County. Thanks. And yeah. 
You know, honestly, I do want to say one more thing about that, though. I sure, think, please. Yeah. To be totally honest, we we as a as you know within our small team and 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 throughout the county, we do a lot, but honestly, we need to be doing much more, mm-hmm. and not not just the county, but but nationally. You know, yeah. public health funding is always a challenge to secure. It's often oh, precarious from like grant <laughs> to grant. Yes, yeah. and that really limits our ability to do more and make sustained. Mm-hmm like systems level change. And, and there's this, there's also this issue nationally of, of political will and societal stigma. You know, we, we know a lot about what does work, but a lot of that isn't being done. You know, we're, we're raised in a culture that teaches us that addiction is a moral failing. And mm. this is reinforced by the fact that addiction is criminalized. And, you know, there is no other health condition for which these symptoms will get you thrown in jail. But that is true for for substance use disorders. Yeah. And our, yeah. our collective failure to, to treat addiction like we treat other health conditions really does cause, directly cause illness and death. And and the research on substance use disorder stigma and mental health stigma shows us that that stigma actually develop contributes to the development of addiction and mm-hmm. prevents recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to, to recognize that addiction is common, it's preventable, it's treatable and there's this overdose epidemic in our country and we need to treat it like all of that is is true and and put our resources and attention and compassion into it in the same way that we do other health conditions. Oh, that was beautifully said. Thank you so much. Compassion was really what resonated with me because I can just totally hear it from your point of view of of that's how you want to approach people who are dealing with substance use disorders and how it, it it's so stigmatized, like you're saying, it's so stigmatized. I mean, that's I think that's why no one wants to touch it because mm-hmm. no one wants to be the first per- person, at least for a politician, maybe, to say, "Hey, can we not just put everybody that has substance issues in prison?" You yeah. know, I think that's a really <laughs> unpopular opinion these days. It's it's much easier to go with the flow and go, "Well, we don't want to deal with that. Let's just." tuck them away and ignore the issue. I think um, that's I know. true. I, I do think it's, yeah. I, I have hope and I think it's getting better. It might be going in, in the right direction. We do have a lot of great advocates out there, mm-hmm. but it, but we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why it was so important for me to get you on this podcast. Cause I, I just want to put it, you know, just lay our cards out there and say, this is happening. And are you aware of it? And how mm-hmm. can we fund public health entities like yours to make sure that we're not adding to the problem. And and being, you know, born and raised in King County, Seattle, Washington, I'm sure you have resources and translations in different languages to approach the different demographics of people that live in this area. Mm-hmm. Do, do you guys do you guys go out to try to to go to schools and reach parents to make them aware of what's happening with their kids? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I feel like this is something parents should be aware of for young people as well. Um, and what types of languages are you guys translating this information in? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so a lot, and and we have done some work in schools, especially to to make them aware of fentanyl. Yeah. And on our our website, again, that's kingcounty.gov/overdose. Yeah, we do have we have a lot of posters, and the the design of those were informed by by youth to be attractive to them. <laughs> and some of our schools were like very willing to, to put those up around the school. So that was wonderful. 
And we also have a fentanyl warning for, for parents and for students and school administration. That is a, a letter that kind of talks about what fentanyl is and, and what they can do. And that is in a whole that and a lot of our posters are in a wide range of languages. I think they're in the awesome. top, top 13 spoken languages in the county, awesome. if I remember correctly. So, and you can get those at our website. So I definitely encourage people to check that out. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. That's something that we are just telling my staff here at 3W is like, maybe we need to download some and just put it, put it up around the country. Yeah. I love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we have posters around all the time about different you know, those cover your cough kind of posters, right? Um, And then, but we have it in English and we have it in Spanish and we have it in Vietnamese. And that's wonderful that you have translated all of your information because it should be talked about in the home in their native tongue so that they know to be aware of it. So that's really important. That's really cool. So what can, what can we be doing as a community? 3W is a nonprofit that's part of the community. What can we do as a resource to help to, to make sure people are more aware, not just on our podcast, but what types of resources can we give to patients if they ever are struggling with an addiction? What can we do to point them your way? What, what does that process look like? Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm really glad you're thinking action steps. So so clinics can provide a warm, welcoming, and non-judgmental space for patients. I think I really want to lead with that. I think that's one of the most mm. important things we can do. Yeah. And honestly, those those posters that you're talking about, just having them around shows mm-hmm. that you're like open to having this conversation, you know. So so that yeah. is a great first step. And then, you know, pr- providers can really lead with trauma-informed care and patient-centered care. Mm-hmm. Use those motivational interviewing skills or, or you know, if, if you don't have those skills yet, please get them. Motivational mm-hmm. interviewing is a, is a great tool to kind of level the power dynamic a bit mm-hmm. so that we can have productive conversations with patients instead of, you know, ineffective lectures. And we really yeah. need to just like demonstrate respect and understanding and compassion so that we mm-hmm. can build those trusting relationships and, and, patients can feel, you know, comfortable even disclosing their drug use. And if patients do disclose, you know, we could be talking to them about ways to reduce the potential harms of their drug use and Mm -hmm. provide them with harm reduction supplies or education or refer them to a syringe service program. You can find those local resources at our website. And then lastly, I also say definitely treat with evidence. So we need Mm -hmm. to, you know, recognize that substance use disorder is a treatable health condition offer medications for opioid use disorder when it's indicated and reduce the barriers to care as much as possible. And and a big part of that is reflecting on our biases and working to eliminate stigma. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a big a big topic to learn. You know, I do like whole trainings and workshops around how we can reduce stigma. But but for something, you know, tangible and like a, a takeaway that we can, you know, work on today is is changing our language. So so we can work to to stop using stigmatizing language. There's actually a good amount of research out there that shows that the way we talk about addiction actually changes the way that we treat it. So for example, when we use the term substance abuser, that that term abuse can denote like violence. So when we use abuser instead of person with a substance use disorder, providers are more likely to feel that the patient is at fault for their condition. And that uh, like punitive rather than supportive interventions are appropriate. So there's a really great resource, and maybe we can you know link link to it in the yeah. episode. But a great yeah. resource from NIDA called Words Matter, and it's kind of a helpful guide, a, a little language guide. It explains what words we should use, 
what instead of others and and kind of give some background information about why and that's really useful. Yeah, I I have it right here in front of me and it was super useful to prepare for our podcast today. So thank you so much for sending that over to us ahead of time. But it's definitely a resource I'm going to pass on to our medical providers because there's a lot of really key information in here that could help continue to open and building a trusting relationship with our patients to make sure that when they come in for an exam where we're approaching them with compassion and love in a space of non-judgmental and saying, hey, what, because all of our appointments are to an, an hour, we're able to peel back a lot of different, different questions and different issues that might arise, not just looking at what they're coming in for. And a lot of these come up all the time. And how do we keep that line of communication open to continue to say, hey, we're here for you. How can we help? How can we walk alongside you? And if we don't have all the tools, we know where to turn Mm -hmm. and point you to. So this was so helpful, especially the back, the, the table of terms to avoid, terms to use, and why. I love the why part of like, Sometimes people just say, don't use that word. And I was like, wait, what, but why? What other yeah. word could describe it better? So that that was so useful for me to prepare for today's conversation. And I think it'll be really, really helpful for our medical providers as they continue to serve patients in our area. That's great. That's great. I appreciate you passing that that on. And I, you know, I also yeah. want to say that, you know, we are all continuously learning and growing and mm-hmm. we can't expect no one's expecting you to get all the language right 100% of the time for every single thing. You know, language is a, yeah. a, a changing thing. So I think, you know, yeah. the intent is what matters and, and we can right. all just, you know, try, try our best and, and hold each other accountable in like respectful ways. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Yeah, because I know I screw up all the time. And it, because English is my second language, sometimes it's difficult to choose the right words mm-hmm. um, to use in a conversation, especially when it's a sensitive conversation. I think just tone really matters and eye contact, you know, all those like body language cues and, and making sure people know that they're just in a space that they can divulge this type of information and it's not going to go anywhere and it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not going to be used against them at any point, you know, Um, it doesn't change the type of care they're going to get if they disclose any type of, yeah, any of this information. It's like, what's said in the consultation room or exam room is between you and the provider. Mm -hmm. No one else is going to know about it. It's just providing safe spaces for folks to know that they could come and say and and disclose. So thank you so much for this resource. I'm definitely going to pass it on to our providers and our providers are so great. They're very much learners. And so just to, to wrap things up, what are, what are some advice that you have for folks that, are listening to this podcast that are struggling with opioid use that are that know someone that's struggling with opioid use what can what is some advice and tips you would you like to pass on this is this is a really important question and i yeah. i have kind of a lot to say on this so so bear yeah. with me um, oh no go go right ahead <laughs> so so first i want to say that you know not everyone who uses drugs has an addiction but Everyone who uses drugs, especially those unregulated ones with the unknown strength and purity, is at mm-hmm. risk of overdose. Mm-hmm. So when you're using drugs, regardless of whether or not you, you feel like you're, you're struggling with that, please follow some harm reduction tips 
to reduce your risk of overdose. So that includes avoid using alone. If you use mm-hmm. alone, no one is there to help you if something goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and there are still a lot of reasons why people do use alone. So, so if you must use alone, there are some SQL services you can try neverusealone.com and that will, you know, alert paramedics if you stop responding to a live chat or a call. So, so check that out if you are somebody who, who is going to use this alone. Yeah. That's uh, so such again, a neat resource. Yeah. Oh, it's very cool. Yes. I'm so wow. glad that it exists. So check that out. And then, you know, some other things that can reduce your risk is, is going slow. So start with a small amount to see how it affects you before you decide mm-hmm. to take more. And if you mm-hmm. do use more, be sure to just like increase slowly. You know, you don't want to take it all at once. You know, I like to say you can always use more, but you can't use less. Mm-hmm. You don't want to overdo it, put yourself at risk for overdose. Okay. And then you also want to avoid mixing drugs. And that includes alcohol. So mm-hmm. if you're going to, you know, mix alcohol with an opioid, that's really dangerous. Or even, you know, an, an opioid with a stimulant is also really dangerous. Mixing drugs in general really increases your risk of overdose. So, so avoid mixing them. And if you do use multiple drugs, use less and use one at a time if you can. That'll, that'll help. You can also test for fentanyl. There are fentanyl test strips. You can get them from local syringe services programs or, or contact us. That's a, that's a useful tool. Is it free? It is. It is, yes. Yeah, it's free. Okay. Yeah, I think at this point we are mostly providing to organizations, so it would it would be a little difficult for us to handle like a lot of individual requests. But from organizations, we we we've got test scripts to hand out for sure. Okay. So again, you can go to our website and, and contact us, or or you know write me an email. I'm I'm happy to put my email out into the into the world. So. Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. that something that like you encourage a place like 3W to have on hand to pass out? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, okay. you know, and we can provide you all with some training on on how to how to talk to people about using them. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl test strips are a really useful tool, but they also have some uh, some sort of caveats. And I okay. I think that could be a, a whole other conversation. But sure. But just know that that's a resource out there and we're more than happy to talk about it and, and provide some supplies. Okay. Yeah. And then then lastly on those overdose prevention tips, you know, we should we should all know the signs of overdose and how to respond to them if we're if we're using or around people who use and we should all have naloxone, which is also known as Narcan. It's the that's the brand name. And mm-hmm. that is the opioid overdose antidote. So get access to that. Tell others you have it, where it is, how and when to use it. And you can get all of that information and like a, a brief overdose response training video and, and anything you could really need at stopoverdose.org. And so you can you can learn more about it and find the Loxone near you at stopoverdose.org. Yeah. And then so... When we're talking about people who are struggling with with their use or with addiction, mm-hmm. again, I just want to say to, to try to push back against the stigma. So if your mm-hmm. loved one is struggling, really try to, to show them love and support. I I know that this can be hard, especially if their use is, is chaotic and causing real stress and pain. But I think it's really the most important thing that, that we can do. There's really a, a very stigmatized and wrongheaded belief that we're somehow enabling people with addiction when we don't use, you know, quote unquote, tough love. But yeah. we we know that tough yeah. love doesn't work. It really only pushes people further away. And, you know, I mm-hmm. totally okay and, and good and, and beneficial to have boundaries. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely not saying let people, you know, control your lives and, and walk all over you or whatever. Boundaries are good. 
but we shouldn't be exiling people from our lives for struggling with a health condition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, try to have open conversations with your loved ones who are struggling, have open conversations with your kids before they even try substances and, Mm -hmm. and show them, like really demonstrate that you are there for them and and they can be honest with you without, you know, without you getting angry. So yeah. And if they are using drugs, do what you can to to help them be as safe as possible. So I talked about naloxone and and really anyone who is at risk of experiencing or witnessing an opioid overdose should carry naloxone. So so again, please Mm. uh, check out stopoverdose.org. A couple more points on this. Make sure to seek help from evidence-based sources. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote addiction treatment that isn't necessarily based in evidence. So I would encourage you to, you know, go to our website to, to learn more, find resources mm-hmm. and services. Also our colleagues at UW ADAI, the University of Washington mm-hmm. Addiction, Drug and Alcohol Institute are mm-hmm. an excellent resource for information. And if you're ready to find a treatment provider, you can look up the Washington Recovery Helpline and, and they'll get you connected with with that. And and for treatment, you know, for opioid use disorder, know that the the gold standard of care is medication. So that's primarily methadone and buprenorphine, which is also known as suboxone. Those are the most effective treatments for most people. And and those medications do have their own stigma. I think, you mm-hmm. know, people when they think of methadone, they they think of a lot of a lot of things. But but the fact is that these medications work. And they are life-saving. And in fact, they reduce the chance of death by over 50%. So, wow. I mean, that's, it's, it's huge. It's really, truly life-saving. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's um, amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And it helps people get, get stable so they can address other things in their lives, you know, start counseling or whatever it is that they might need. And they're not like constantly rushing to, to not feel sick anymore, right? They just feel stable. Mm-hmm. So if you or your loved one is struggling with opioid use, ask your healthcare provider about those medications. And also keep in mind that it is normal to take several treatment attempts to get better. So don't give up if you or your loved one returns to use. Just, you know, just try again. Yeah. And it's, it's totally normal and, and even effective early on. Yeah. And then lastly, you know, if, if you yourself are, are struggling with substance use, know that you're not alone and that people mm-hmm. do recover. Recovery is actually more common than not. I think, you know, we tend to think it's the opposite, but, but people mm-hmm. do recover and they do it every day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because of stigma, you may face judgment, even from some healthcare providers, but Mm -hmm. please know that there are people in the world who care about you and you are worthy of love and respect and good health and you absolutely can recover. Awesome. Mandy, that was so beautiful and eloquent of you to say that. Just go to Mandy. (laughs) Just give Mandy a call. Just email Mandy. Just get on a phone call with her. And she'll help you through it. That's, I love it. Um, yeah, that's so. That was so beautiful and um, and so touching. And I just and so genuine. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying all of that because there's a lot of people out there hurting and mm-hmm. feeling alone. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be in that spot. Whatever it is that you're going through, it's it's so much better if you reach out to someone. And if we could be that person for you or that space for you please don't hesitate to pick up the phone to give us an, you know, come through the door, reach out to Mandy and King County Public Health. (laughs) There's just a slew of people who don't know you, but they truly, truly care and just want you to be healthy and happy and, and a contributing member of our world. And because when you hurt, 
we hurt in some some way. It's a ripple mm-hmm. effect. It affects all of us in some way. So thank you, Mandy, just for your time and your passion for this topic. I can just tell that it's something that you really want to get that message out there as much as possible. So thank you so much for coming on to our itty bitty little podcast <laughs> and making sure that people are aware. The bottom line is, is you are you are loved and that you're cared for and that you don't have to suffer alone if if you're going through this. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for opening up this conversation and for caring about this and for doing all of the the great work that that you all are doing. So um, yeah, thank thank you you. so much. Thank you, Mandy. Is there anything else, any last words for our listeners that you would like to leave them with before we wrap things up? You know, I think I've, I think I've said it. I just, Maybe again, I'll say to check out the resources that are yeah. that are going to be linked to. There's a there's a ton of information out there, and and if you know where to find, you know, the real evidence based stuff. There's there's yeah a, a lot of good information out there for you. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll definitely provide those links on our on our little description when we publish this episode, and make sure that it's in people's hands and it's accessible to them. And thank you so much for making yourself available to us today. And talking about this really important topic that's impacting our community and our our state and our nation, let's just keep talking about it. Continue to keep it on the forefront of issues that are impacting our community and the people that are around us and make sure that people aren't stigmatized and alone. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mandy. Thank you for for tuning into this awesome episode. It's always so wonderful to have guests like Mandy come on and speak into a topic that is so specialized and so prevalent. So tune in again next week for another awesome Wellness Wednesday episode. Thank you so much for listening once again. For more information about 3W, please visit our website at 3wmedical.org. That's the number three, the letter W, medical.org. From there, you can learn more information about the services we provide, book an appointment, or make a donation if you'd like to support our mission. You can also call our office at 206-588-0311. That's 206-588-0311. If you like this episode, Please share it with others and consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay healthy and be well.